City Park is the largest green space in downtown Denver. I don't know who came up with the name City Park, but I'd say he hit it right on the head. I aim to embody the simplicity with which that man lived his life. I'm sure with all his extra time, he was the great namer of things, but also had a great golf score too. That must be what has always been my problem. While golfers keep it simple by keeping their eyes on the ball, I'm staring up at the clouds thinking about anything else. A random thought. The process of reflection could be described as expanding simple answers to make them more complex and then reducing their complexity to better simpler answers that resonate deeper than the old ones did. This urban green landscape in downtown Denver called City Park was complete with amenities including an event pavilion built in 1882 overlooking a man-made lake stocked with whatever species of fish is most easily caught, several landscape fields each traced with trees, modern playgrounds made safe for kids, bring your own helmets and leashes too, I guess. Meandering bike paths, frivolous fountains, and a massive bronze Martin Luther King Jr. statue for good measure. On the north end sits the Denver Zoo, on the east the Science Center, and right in the city park's middle on a gray Monday morning in mid-December, you might find me, sitting on a park bench beside a smaller pond, eating from a camping pot, some oatmeal with cinnamon, dehydrated strawberries, extra raisins, there I was, wondering about the mating habits of the Canada goose. In this pond, called Duck Lake, there goes Mr. Namer of Things again, I witnessed 1,000 geese honking over each other, an endless nasal chorus of mating songs and territorial squabbles demanding constant attention. Usually, if you see one or two geese, you don't even think much of them. When you see 10 or 20, you look, maybe point them out to whoever you're walking with, and then drift back to your previous topic of conversation. But seeing a small body of water invaded with a full tribe of feathered foreigners, I was completely captivated. Humans act differently in large numbers, at music festivals or on tourist buses, and I suspect the strength in numbers here had a similar energizing effect on the geese. They were making an absolute raucous, like a frenzy would swell audibly for minutes and then suddenly disperse until there was just half a second of total silence, before one squawk would lead to 50, to 500, to a thousand cries and calls once again. I was beginning to think there was some sort of a rhythm to it all somehow, as if the bedlam carried a secret meaning that I was not trained to decipher. Every few minutes, anywhere from 3 to 60 geese would take off all at once in seemingly perfect coordination, flying for some pre-discussed horizon. The group sizes were always different, and the direction each flock chose could not possibly be predicted. How did they decide when it was time to leave? Did the same geese always depart together? Or perhaps one spontaneous goose honked to the others, Hey gang, I'm heading up to that pond where those kids feed us potato chips. Who's in? Alright then, we're leaving in three minutes. Were they leaving for a day trip or to run errands or would they not be back at the same pond until this time next year or ever? Did they take flight reactively because they didn't like the cut of the jib of those other geese that just arrived? What was the significance of that tiny moment of peace when they all chose silence? Was that the end of a song they all knew just before the beginning of another? Wait, was I at a Canada to Goose karaoke night? While my oatmeal went cold, I read the entire Wikipedia about this enthralling animal and was only left with more questions. My daydreams and pondside ponderings felt necessary, both as a meditation and a celebratory respite. After an expansive afternoon and encouraging night in Boulder, I was physically exhausted and emotionally energized. 
I had come to this pond to spend time with the geese, to rest, to collect my thoughts, and plan the next move. I, too, was wondering how to decide when and where to fly away. I was supposed to meet up with Ian, my old friend from where I'd lived in Colorado Springs as a teenager, but after reaching out to him a couple times over the last couple weeks, I could palpably gauge the declining enthusiasm due to his gradually delayed response times and more ambiguous replies. And in all my daydreaming, I had failed to notice that the nighttime temperature promised inhospitality to anyone attempting a night in their van. While it seemed everywhere I traveled happened to be unseasonably warm during the days, winter was always biting at my heels after sunset and kept me from lingering anywhere too long. Tomorrow I would head south, but tonight I was in a bit of a bind. Distracted by the abstract, I had momentarily lost touch with the concrete. While I was consumed with thoughts of life direction, waterfowl communication, and fostering deep connections, I had forgotten the daily questionnaire. What is the low temperature? Where am I sleeping tonight? What do I need to eat next? Now I only had a few hours of daylight to cobble together a solution. I could waste money on a hotel, but that was an unacceptable use of funds. It was too late to line up somewhere through couch surfing for the night. 1,000 geese honked stuck at me as I shook my head, forever amazed at the cost of not living in the moment and the effort it took to do so. Being present is important, but we may need to distinguish between two types of this mindfulness. Some of us spend most of our time thinking about abstract ideas and nearly turn off our senses to our surroundings. But since we are focused on something that we perceive as relevant, we consider ourselves to be present-minded. Some of us spend more time engaging with our sensory data and disengage from thinking about some so-called bigger picture that doesn't actually exist. And I would argue that paying attention to our immediate surroundings and noticing what our senses are experiencing is the best form of staying present. When you sit quietly and watch the mountains, rather than wondering what animals might live there or whether they are growing or shrinking, just appreciate the colors you see and the texture of the granite and the trees. That kind of being present encapsulates not only the now, but the here, too. And, ironically, by staying present, time itself ceases to exist. Hello? Hi, Grandma. Oh, hi. I wasn't expecting your call. Neither was I, but each of us was always happily surprised when the other phoned. Listen, Grandma, I'm in Denver, and I need Kent and Sherilyn's phone number, if you have it. I had suddenly remembered vaguely familiar relatives that I hadn't seen, spoken to, or heard from or about in roughly 15 years. Besides Ian, who I wasn't counting on anymore, they were the only people in Denver I knew the names of. Oh, I sure do, she said. One second, let me go get my book. She put down the receiver due to being attached to its base by a curly cord and went to get a leather-bound notebook. That tomb was filled with names dating back 50 years, oft-amended addresses and birthdays never forgotten. Each listing in the ledger was alphabetized in scrawling cursive with cheap ballpoint pens. The silence while I waited was filled with nostalgia. I missed my grandma, phoneless pockets and landlines. Sure enough, she had their contact information, allowing me to make what felt akin to a cold call, and I was cold. I didn't really like that I was calling them when I needed something, and I acknowledged that I didn't really need a place to stay. I could always just run the van a little more often, tough out a rough night, and move on. I decided I wasn't going to ask if I could stay at their place, I was just going to see if I could visit this evening and perhaps meet up with Ian later that night if he finally got back to me. And on the way, I'd keep my eyes open for a nice heated parkade so I could dip back there after my socializing. And if someone happened to offer me a warm bed, I'd accept. This was the game now. Put myself into as many situations as possible, keep all doors open, and enjoy where it all leads. Deep conversations, home-cooked meals, opportunities to contribute and learn, shelter on cold nights. 
My goal was not to ask for things, but to receive openly what is offered. This felt like an important distinction, but perhaps I was fooling myself. Hello? Her voice was timeless and familiar. Sherilyn always spoke loudly and in a slightly dramatic tone, as if she was cast in the role of a fringe character on a sitcom, the one who always gets a cheer when she walks through the apartment's front door. Who? Oh, wow, I haven't heard that name in years. What's going on? You're at City Park? Ha! How are the geese today? Come by tonight? Oh, absolutely. I've got so much laundry to do, we'll be up till the cows come home. Do you remember our address? Well, let me give it to you. You have a sister, right? Yeah, we remember her. I think we remember you. When I arrived on their street, I parked in the driveway from memory. Kent and Sherilyn invited me in with big hugs and smiles, and I eagerly explored their house, marveling at how clear my recollection was. They'd lived in the house for 40 years, raising five children and then enjoying an empty, peaceful nest. It looked exactly the way that I'd seen it 15 years earlier. Light yellow walls filled with copious family photos, white floors, a square trampoline lived in the backyard, still tense after all these years. Across the yard grew raspberry bushes. I recognized everything, but their eyes looked like they were seeing my face for the first time. In a sense, they were. Unkempt hair, the beginnings of a scraggly beard, bigger smiles, a deeper curiosity, and what looked to be a healthy dose of confidence. Who is this boy? Compared to the pimply, resentful, and insecure 15-year-old version of me they'd last seen, I wouldn't have recognized me either. As we settled into the living room, where every surface had some sort of Christmas decoration and there was a festive tree glittering with ornamental decadence, they proceeded to tell me about their latest cruise up the Mississippi River. Unlike previous visits, I asked them all sorts of questions about their life, their marriage, their family, their careers, everything a teenager couldn't give two shits about and a 33-year-old can be genuinely interested in. They belonged to the Mormon church, and they'd been married nearly 50 years, and they were extremely kind and gentle people. Family was at the core of their every decision. They completed each other's sentences out of habit and carried soft and connected hearts inside peaceful, aging bodies. I told them about my mission to travel and write and learn and contribute, about the forthcoming book and the podcast, and about how I was trying to figure out what all of this would look like and where it was going. They offered me some hot dogs and a bed to sleep in for the night. Wilson thanked them silently too, as I extracted him from the van, just as the corners of the windows began to frost. One more warm night. Making conversation over breakfast before hitting the road, I told them about my plan to find my 8th grade English teacher and interview her for my podcast. So far, my best plan was to show up at a library that had featured her a couple years ago in their newsletter and see if they'd connect us. Barring that, I'd knock on the doors of my old school and ask the admin to pass along a message. Though it had likely been 20 years since she had retired, I was quite sure that if I was showing up like this to see her, other students would have done the same too. She wasn't like most teachers. What's her name? Kent asked. Kay Esmiel, Kathleen, I guess. But she doesn't have any listed data online at all. Like no phone number, no social media. Give me two minutes, he said. Follow me. He sat down in his office and turned on the desktop computer. The printer beside him also awakened from his slumber, clicked and hummed a few times to let us know he too was available should we need him. We wouldn't. If I couldn't use the internet to find her, Kent wasn't going to find anything worth printing either. You see, he sighed as he plugged her name into an online database I'd never seen, 
The Mormon Church keeps incredibly detailed records of nearly every person who was born in North America since the 1600s, and we are constantly researching and recording lineages. I thought about how when we were kids and we saw the missionaries going door to door, my sister and I would turn out the lights and duck behind the furniture. They were always offering to help and asking questions that seemed a little too familiar and implying we ought to invite them in. I didn't really realize they were also basically taking a census survey at that time too. Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Google have likely already read every word I've written, but as it turns out, Mormons are probably the closest human equivalent to the monstrous technology gods we've created for ourselves. Jesus' info was catching up to the big four. Here you go, he smiled. The printer started clicking again as if it was a puppy eager to perform a new trick. Here's her name, phone number, current address, email, and here's her son's phone number too, just in case. With the smooth whirring and robotic clacking, I suddenly was holding an inkjet and paper record of everything I would need to find her. Looks like she just had a birthday recently too, so she's 83 now. Incredible. Good printer. Good boy. Who else could I ask the Mormons to find? An old crush? Oprah? Jesus himself? As I drove south, I had to chuckle. What had been a spontaneous and well-intentioned family visit and potentially a warm bed had conspired into effortless access to the most important information I needed to accomplish the only conversation I had planned for Colorado Springs. Back in the lowest moment at the Days Inn a couple weeks earlier, I had received an email from the Center for Emotional Education letting me know that their next training would begin in January. They were showing students how to acknowledge and regulate the emotions that arise in difficult situations, how their fluctuating neurology increases and decreases our capacity for different types of interactions, and how to communicate effectively with people depending on their neural state to guide them towards empowerment. Someone who followed my Instagram had told me about this training when I had been reflecting on what I termed emotional self-sufficiency. Emotional self-sufficiency. Acknowledging and leveraging the idea that you are responsible for generating your own positive emotions and for resolving the discomfort associated with the difficult sensations. You are not controlled by the external environments and as such you release the need to control the external environment or seek external validation in order for you to achieve emotional regulation. For some this sounds obvious and for others it is totally foreign. Kate Collins had messaged me last summer saying that they taught emotional sovereignty, and we both agreed that that was a better term. We planned a phone call and talked for almost two hours about the framework they used, and I found it quite compelling, simple in theory, powerful in practice. The whole program had originated as a response to the demands of parents wanting to know how to raise their children with high emotional intelligence, and therefore allowing for sane parents of emotionally regulated children. This had evolved into a fully-fledged curriculum for adults helping themselves and other adults. Humans of any age need to learn how to unpack their emotions, enhance communication during conflict, and make better decisions sooner after problems arise. She had added me to the mailing list, and I just so happened to read the email at the time when I was searching wildly for answers about what training I would need and opportunities I would find to feel like I was progressing just a little bit more towards something structured and formal. 
From the road, now, I called her to ask about this training, and she explained that the course taught the framework for my own benefit, but also then helped me teach it to others so they could employ it in their life. She'd been what they call a neuro-emotional coach, running her own practice for over a decade, and swore by it, above every other parenting and coaching framework she'd ever learned. It felt right to me. I knew I would have to invest some of my money in myself at some point, and based on the few trial sessions I'd had with Kate in the fall, the whole framework gave structure and sense to some of the most painful interactions I'd had in recent years. I wish I'd learned this much earlier. If it benefited me to learn it and apply it to my life now, I was willing to bet others would be interested in learning and exploring it too. Learn and then contribute. She sent me the course application along with a scholarship application and told me to share that I was on a mission to tackle hard conversations well, that I was writing and learning in hopes of sharing found wisdom and meaningful insights with others, and that I was mostly broken living in a van hoping one day to become a writer. She was optimistic that they would meet me at the edges of my budget to ensure that I could attend the training. I was confident that this was a very important step forward. I applied. Hauling my small life down Interstate 25, I got a little emotional when I finally saw Pike's Peak, a monarch over every mountain in sight, standing 14,115 feet above sea level and 8,000 feet above the small city of Colorado Springs. Pike's Peak was the symbolic treasure chest where I had buried all old emotions. The familiar mountain demanded my prolonged eye contact as I was transported almost hypnotically back to a time when I had resented being here, when I had felt alone and unwanted and didn't even know it, where I had spent four years resenting parents that loved me, when I had cultivated a destructive relationship with food and my own body, when I believed that I'd probably die soon anyway so nothing really mattered. Ugh. Now, looking at the same view of red rock mountains dressed in deep green pine needles and capped with frost, with one stony gray granite behemoth stealing the show, I knew that I would not only visit this town from a new perspective, but that my curiosity, optimism, and gratitude would allow me to revisit my buried past. Reframing my childhood was a mountain I was ready to climb. Sitting in my van on the side of the road, I called the number for Mrs. Esmiel, and sure enough, the voicemail recording confirmed the Mormons were up to date. I nervously left a rambling message, not sure how much I needed to explain about who I was or what I was hoping to accomplish. She called me back within an hour. You know, she said. It took me a minute to remember who you are because I don't remember you talking this much the way you did in your voicemail. My confidence and energy had totally shifted since I was 13, but I was still surprised that she remembered me being quiet. I remember how loudly my thoughts were yelling at me all those years and how desperately I thought I was pleading for connection with others, saying whatever I needed to feel accepted. But I also remember that in her class, I was listening much closer than anywhere else. She was eager to meet me, and we planned a lunch downtown at a rather opulent hotel a few days later. For the first couple days, I would be staying with Leroy, a couch-surfing host who lived in a part of Colorado Springs I didn't know existed. The black part. The poor part. Leroy was ex-military, mid-40s, Jamaican in cuisine, appearance, and accent, but Americanized through military and the cultural input from the constantly humming TV in his living room. Leroy was also a foster dad to a pudgy 13-year-old kid named Tristan, who looked like he was trying to be tough, but gave me a weak fist bump and went back to watching Family Guy. 
Every couple hours, Leroy verbally listed all of the tasks he needed to accomplish and kept busy cooking meals, running errands, interfacing with the team of bureaucrats and social workers that tracked the lives of foster kids, all revolving around the daily ritual of watching Wheel of Fortune at 6 o'clock. Within a few hours of being there, Tristan started asking me questions about what I'd like to do for fun, and it became clear that the only acceptable answers were related to TV shows and basketball. I chose basketball only because I had a pair of Air Jordans in the van, and I recognized that both of us could use a little bit more physical activity. We made plans to find a court the next day. Almost right away, I could sense a tension in Leroy as he overheard this. He sensed I was a wild card, that I got to be the cool guy while he had to be the tough parent. I talked with Tristan about sports and hip-hop while Leroy nagged him about report cards and how to load a dishwasher properly. With him, Tristan was always, yes sir, no sir. And with me, he was animated, curious, and alive. I thought I would be here to connect with the foster dad as the host, but it turned out the path of least resistance was connecting with the kid. He was the same age I was when I had lived there. But he'd spent his whole life shuffling around rougher communities, slugging his belongings from one foster home to the next in a black garbage bag. The next day, on the way to the basketball court, Tristan told me he didn't trust me yet, but that he was trying. I asked him what he wanted in life. At first, he was confused by the question. Like, what's the biggest thing you want to accomplish or achieve, I said. What is the number one outcome you want to see happen in your life? Oh, I want a family. He said it like it was too obvious to have thought of, like the question itself was stupid. Maybe it was. Maybe I should have known. He stared out the window of Hober and kept speaking. I want a mom and a dad. I want a place that feels like home. It's almost happened a couple of times, but they always end up adopting someone younger. In school, he was getting in fights and pulling pranks and breaking things he didn't own. But here with me, he was just a young boy who felt unwanted and alone. I was witnessing his curiosity and desire to connect here, and I knew that elsewhere he was the same articulate and honest teenager just smothering himself in negative attention because it was the easiest way to get any attention at all. Well, anyways, he said, it probably won't happen now. I'll get released by the system at 18 and have virtually no skills or opportunities and nobody to lean on to help me figure out how to live life. The foster system isn't designed to help us succeed. It's just designed to keep us off the streets until they aren't legally responsible for us. I know they don't really care about me. They care about their checklists and keeping their jobs. Anyways. Tristan sighed, dismissing his entire reality with one word. I'm planning to get into the NBA. Ah, the old Hail Mary. The dream to redeem ourselves through some future heroic accomplishment. We often dream as large as we do in direct proportion to how much we want to escape our current reality. This is especially true when we find ourselves putting little effort into making those dreams come true. They are a whimsical escape to trick our brains into releasing the chemicals we want to feel as if we were already there. A few days later, I set up microphones in the lobby of the Antlers Hotel in downtown Colorado Springs and eagerly awaited Mrs. Esmiel's arrival. Would I recognize her? I shouldn't have been surprised to see that she looked exactly the way I remembered her from 20 years earlier. Long hair the color of sand, sunglasses upon her head where I remember reading glasses had always lived, dark eyes that pierced deeply and welcomed warmly, a green turtleneck and a navy blazer. The only difference in her appearance was that she was shorter, because I was taller. Sorry I'm late, she sighed, giving me a big hug and a familiar smile. It's so good to see you. 
We all know certain people who change the energy of the room when they walk in. Indeed, we are all changing the energy with our presence, but some people seem to create larger ripples, and usually not through volume or quantity of words or actions. It is those people that invigorate us, effortlessly make us feel immediately comfortable, and inspire a reconnection to our favorite parts of ourselves. Those are the people I believe we should pay attention to, learn from, and emulate. For just over an hour, we recorded a conversation that I dreamed of for two decades. For me, this wasn't a reconnection with a long-lost teacher, but a continuation of a relationship with and a deeper exploration of a person who I had probably consciously thought about once every month for 246 months since I'd last seen her. Anyone who leaves that kind of a mark on a life never feels too far away. After we recorded the conversation for an hour, and that conversation will be the next episode on this podcast, her and I went for a three-hour lunch compensating for the slow eating by covering a wide ground on a range of topics from catching up on 20 years of living, learning more about each other's families, discussing the decline of critical thought in society, patterns of segregation and scapegoating throughout history, and choosing hills to die on. It quickly became apparent that while I was here to thank her for having a substantial impact on my life, I was just another small boy among thousands who had a great reason to celebrate the role Miss Esmiel had played in their lives. She was a highly intentional teacher who chose respect over reprimands, who modeled the value of curiosity over judgment, and who inspired in her students a ruthless integrity that left parents, principals, and superintendents stunned at the transformation that happened in her classroom every year for decades. And beyond all that, she had also taken to the streets of her city to find, document, and highlight systemic injustices and inspire hundreds and thousands of people to rally around the strength of those who persevered through unfair treatment. She celebrated the stories that deserve to be told and shared them eloquently and widely. She wrote books, plays, operas, social commentary, and confessed that she only accomplished a fraction of the important ideas she'd wanted to. In the early 90s, a group of black students came to her saying they felt unwanted by their school. They weren't welcome on the sports teams, never got elected for student council, never got lead roles in plays, and in their minds that was because the plays were written for white characters. These students were coming to Mrs. Esmiel, an English teacher, because they knew that she would be able to carve a solution into the pervading structures and shine a light on the path forward. And they were right. At their request, Mrs. Esmiel sanctioned a club for racial minorities and suggested they put on their own play that they find a character and a story that reflected their culture rather than squish themselves into a mainstream narrative that didn't feel like home. And so they began searching for a story. Mrs. Esmiel soon discovered someone named Fannie Mae Duncan. Fannie Mae had fought a reluctant city council to become the first black woman to own a major business in Colorado Springs in the 1950s. Fannie Mae broke down all sorts of racial and gender barriers by opening up the Cotton Club, the only jazz club in Colorado that refused to segregate patrons, the only jazz club where black jazz musicians were allowed to perform, where prejudice had to be checked at the door. A sign hung outside the establishment in bold letters, everybody welcome. Fannie Mae's story is incredible, but the story I couldn't help but focus on was what Mrs. Esmiel did with it. 
she inspired the students to write their own play based on Fannie Mae's life, to track down Fannie Mae herself, who had since declined into old age and whose story had been largely forgotten, so that they could include her in the detailed and thoughtful recreation of her life. Each week, Mrs. Esmiel would drive an hour to Denver, collect Fannie Mae, then in her 70s, and immerse her in an energetic group of 8th graders eager to interview her, channel her tenacity, and celebrate her accomplishments. Wow. The play itself was such a success that it toured for two years, garnering massive support and awareness about the role that Fannie Mae Duncan had played in pushing for true racial equality and social inclusion. Mrs. Esmiel spent the next two decades campaigning city councils and local businessmen to allow for a statue of Fannie Mae in a prominent downtown location, which she coordinated the creation, funding, and eventual placement of. She spent years recording and eventually publishing, in 2013, Fannie Mae's full memoir. Fannie Mae died in 2005, but now lives on in bronze outside the Pikes Peak Center for the Performing Arts. The statue was unveiled in 2019 to a room packed with Colorado Springs Black community, all grateful for the celebration of her enduring legacy. A nervous white mayor gave a short speech, unnecessarily worried about riots and protests. Upon seeing the room filled with tearful eyes, he concluded that he was safe, relaxed into the event, and gave up his seat to an elderly black woman who had lived through those years watching Fannie Mae rock the fucking boat. My 8th grade teacher didn't do it alone, but she knew how to inspire a community towards a cause, and she was intentionally teaching everyone along the way how to make a difference for others, for their community, and for themselves. Now, in her 80s, she still had at least three major projects that she intended to complete, capturing similar stories of urgent significance. She apparently had no interest in the relaxing retirement filled with palm trees and lazy reminiscence. She was still too busy changing the world. After lunch, I walked two blocks to go see the life-size statue of Fannie Mae. I stood in front of it for a long time, grateful that my story had intersected with Mrs. Esmiel's, whose own story had been so impacted by Fannie Mae's. I had shared with Mrs. Esmiel the ideas I had about encouraging difficult conversations, my goals of expanding minds and enriching lives through meaningful discourse and guided reflection, of how I could write about my experiences for the hopeful benefit of others, about how I felt like I had so much to give. I told her how I still struggled with the sense of anxious aimlessness that seemed to be my constant companion, forever riding shotgun on this adventure. You've come alive, she had said. I can see it in your eyes that you are beginning to connect with your potential. I believe that if you keep wrestling with these ideas and ensure you are doing it for the right reasons, that you will have an extraordinary impact on the people you meet. The most powerful people learn to change minds without taking credit. It's best to empower others to make the difference in their lives, and then just show up authentically to support them. Tell your story, tell your truth, so that others can connect with the real you. The way the world is going, we need more people willing to listen carefully and speak up loudly. We need people who can think and then act on behalf of something bigger than themselves and the simple slogans that they are fed. Your tenacity will impact and inspire, so don't give up. When people come to see you as indomitable, they'll eventually listen to what you have to say. I know it because I've been living this way my whole life, and I could tell you all the stories of the wildest things that have ever happened to me as a result. You keep going down this path, and I know you are going to be astonished at what the future will hold for you. 
Just as I had done when I was sitting in her class as a lonely lost boy, I listened quietly to everything she had to say with the utmost gratitude and respect. While already moved by her encouragement and wisdom, I hoped that 20 years from now, I would once again look back on her words as miraculously impactful and undeniably true. <laughs>